At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, as you go there, so great to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, you guys sounded great. Um, as you go to Romans, let me just remind you of the Night of Dreams. The Night of Dreams is coming up for the Dream Center this Thursday, so this is the last call. The Dream Center, many of you guys know, uh, is uh, it's an institution, a nonprofit that we have uh, through which we serve primarily the, the city of Pontiac. And uh, you guys, many of you are aware of just the need, the need to help uh, lift up people from poverty and, uh, and, and helping them uh, not only spiritually through our Pontiac uh, church, uh, but also just uh, in, in life, in all the various areas of life that they are seeking to build and rebuild. And so this is a fundraiser, but it's also just a night to let you know and let us know uh, what the Dream Center has been doing. So there are still some tickets uh, to be sold. And again, it's this uh, Thursday at 6 p.m. Uh, you can talk to us if you're interested, but I want to invite all of you to come. Uh, it'll be a powerful night. There's going to be great food, but also great stories of what the Dream Center has been doing. Okay, we are in Romans 6. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this privilege of being able to come and receive your word through song. So great for us to sing truth, Father. Thank you for the team that allows us to do that. Father, we come today to the final section of Romans 6, and our eyes are being increasingly opened to the spiritual reality of sin. Help us, Father, not think that we understand or grasp more than we do. Give us breakthrough, more discernment, more wisdom, more love for others, more faith in you. Let the remains of the old person in us vanish, that a Christ may be formed in us and shine. Come to our aid now, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans 6, verse 15, Paul writes, What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. 
texting is a double-edged sword. It's so helpful because it's so quick, right? Uh, it's quick to send, quick to receive, but it's also so dangerous because it's so quick. Quick to send, quick to receive. Ironically, the quickness of texting can actually drain down hours of your uh, most productive, best days of the day. You know, there are texters that are attention-draining masters. You know, the way they send text should be illegal. You know, some, some texts are fine. You know, you could get a text like this one. You know, I was watching The Simpsons the other day, and Homer made me think of you. Has anyone ever mentioned that to you before? You know, that's a fine text, you know, content aside. It's all fine. But then you could get a text like this one. Yeah. Has anyone ever texted you like this? You know, and if you're trying to do something really involved, like reading maybe something in Greek or Hebrew, the dinging of those eight texts just ruined your morning, ruined your morning. Even Homer Simpson would have more sense than that. But you know, we carry our phones and we check them an average of 96 times a day, many times more than that because our phones, we think, make us free. You know, we can listen to any music or podcast we want. We can read any kinds of news. We can check other people's posts. We can text, Venmo, play, Google, and make the odd phone call. Do you still make phone calls from your phone? I love my phone. I need my phone. And yet, study after study has shown that our phones are actually changing the structure the structure of our minds. They're, they're hindering our ability to focus, to do deep work, to truly connect with other people, to have a good night's sleep. So this device that promises freedom is actually turning us into people that we never agreed to become. Every form of freedom comes within a specific framework of many demands. And what's insidious about this arrangement is that most of the time we're not aware that this is happening to us. None of us says, hey, I use a smartphone because I wanted to rewire my brain and make me less attentive to work, less attentive to people. I use a smartphone so it can turn me into an addict. None of us says that. I mean, but I mean, let's... I mean, how many of us, how many of you are able to go through a morning without looking at your phone? Don't raise your hand. Don't lie. <laughs> right? What about an hour? Can we go one hour without looking at our phones and not experiencing the addict's longing, the withdrawal chills until we get the next hit? And this from a phone that promises our freedom. You know, as one writer says... What is supposed to allow us to transform our world is instead transforming us, making us into creatures to which many, if not most of us, have not given our consent. Now, the same dynamic at work with our phones is present with anything that fulfills our deepest longings, anything that becomes our bottom line. I've heard versions of the following story countless times. A hardworking, intelligent, you know, young professional goes to work with great ambition and idealism for some company. 10 or 20 years later, they become a version of themselves they despise. So their money and status and name went up, their peace and loveliness and overall humanity went down. What happened there? They thought their hard work and intelligence would bring them freedom, freedom to travel, to purchase, 
to enjoy life, to become a better version of themselves. But instead, the forces and culture at work, you know, around them in their work environment shaped them profoundly into opportunistic, calculating, angry, stressed individuals. Again, every form of freedom comes within a specific framework of many demands. And so we want the freedom, but we miss the framework that enslaves us. And that's what Paul shows us in our passage today. Paul talks today about this metaphor of slavery. He uses the metaphor of slavery to help us understand these dynamics. You know, this slavery that we are able to see in some extreme situations, whether it's alcohol or drug or pornography addictions. But Paul goes beyond that and says that not just overt addicts, but everyone, everyone is a slave. In fact, Paul takes it a step farther and says, everyone is a slave, but only Christians are free. Everyone is a slave, but only Christians are free. So we're going to unpack that statement in three questions. First, who do you obey? Who do you obey? Look at verse 15. Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. You know, people today, whether in the church or outside the church, have a reaction to the word sin, usually a negative reaction. Through the years, many ones of you have commented to me uh, on the fact that I talk about sin. You've said things like, you know, I used to go to a church and they never talked about sin. They talked about self-esteem. They talked about love. They talked about community. Now, you know, when I, when I first came here, you know, and even now, you know, I don't like talking about sin. And it's not like I want to talk about sin more than I talk about Jesus, but they do go together. Because if we don't have a category for sin, uh, and it's merely for us, it's very thin as a con concept, uh, kind of muddled, not to be talked about, then Jesus, and specifically his crucifixion, will be nonsensical to us. You know, early on, uh, when people wrote baptism testimonies here in the church, church uh, they, they, would, they would not really... They, the way that they wrote it betrayed a naive, almost non-existent understanding of sin. They would talk about it in terms of, you know, I used to have other priorities. I made many mistakes. I went to church, but it was more from, you know, out of a family tradition. There was no talk of, I was dead in my sins. I needed a savior. I was an enemy of God, but I needed the blood of Christ to cover my sins. Now, that's not surprising. Uh, the human heart, both functionally and theologically, is prone to forget the gospel. And so we have to constantly be defining it and defending it. And part of defining and defending the gospel is through having a robust understanding of sin, which is a lot of what Paul endeavors to do in the letter to the Romans. If you read Romans chapters 1 through 3, you will see that Paul talked a great deal about sin. And now in chapter 6, which is the chapter we're finishing, Paul is helping us understand the nature of sin sin, listen to this, as a slave master, but a slave master that likes to hide itself. And so he begins verse 15 and says, what then? Shall we sin? Now listen to that. Shall we sin? Hold off. Now all these rhetorical questions that Paul brings up throughout Romans um, are anticipating objections or assumptions that people have brought to him as he talks to them about Jesus. And so why would anyone ask this question? Shall we Continue to sin? Paul has not been unclear. 
He has already said that death came into the world through sin. You know how gory, how horrible death is. How did that come into the world? Through sin. He's already told us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Son of God had to come and die for sin. So Paul has now been unclear as to the horrible effects of human sin beginning with Adam upon the whole human race. So why? Why would anyone entertain the question of sin. Should we sin? Should we continue to sin? I mean, we don't ask questions like, should we keep on drinking poison? No one says that. Should we keep on raping women? Of course the answer is no. Even the questions are inconceivable. So why then would anyone even entertain the question of, hey, let's keep on sinning? Part of the answer is that sin likes to hide itself, likes to make, makes itself invisible. Another way of saying that is that sin always has two sides, a pleasure side and a slave master side. But it, it hides the slave master side and only shows us the pleasure side, which is why we continue to fall for it again and again. Again, sin, we won the freedom, but we miss the framework that enslaves us. You know, if you walked into, say that you went to a Vegas casino. I'm not saying you should go, okay? So don't leave here and be like, pastor said to go to a casino. <laughs> but if you went to one, you would walk, right? And say that you walked into a large room, and it was full of skeletons and cobwebs, and it was dark and musty. I think it's safe to say that you would not stay. People stay in these places because of the lights and it's shiny and the beautiful women and drinks and machines and so forth. And that's what sin is like. Sin has both of those sides, death and glitter. But it only shows us the glitter, it hides the death. Now, incidentally, while I was working on the sermon, you know, I wrote down the word casino and I said it a couple of times. And so later on, when I was online on that same computer, guess what kind of ads they started showing me for some casino game. I'm telling you, we are constantly being shaped into, shaped into people that we've never agreed to become. And so Paul says in verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And he says, by no means. He says, of course not. The person who reasons like this is still under the law. To be under grace, this is such a big misunderstanding within Christian circles. To be under grace doesn't mean to, that we do whatever we want. No, to be under grace means to be under Christ, which means that he cancels our record of debt, he fills up everything that we lack, and he transforms us from within by his spirit. Then in verse 16, Paul says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here's what Paul says is saying. Everyone is a slave. Those are the only options. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or a slave to obedience, that is, to God, which leads to righteousness. So everyone is a slave, but only Christians are free. Verse 17 shows us how only Christians are free. Look at what he says. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your 
allegiance. I love this verse. He says that though we used to be enslaved to sin, there's something else that has now claimed our allegiance. But notice that we go from one allegiance to another. There is no third option. Either we serve sin or we serve God. And so everyone is a slave, but only Christians are free. How can we say that Christians are free? Christians are slaves to God. But here's why our slavery to God is the only kind of true freedom. First of all, unlike sin, God makes himself visible. God doesn't hide himself. God shows us his framework, who he is, uh, that the, he is the king of all things, what he's done for us, and what he expects of us. God makes himself known in scripture. Sin, on the other hand, doesn't make itself known. People don't know what sin is. Before I was a Christian, I didn't know what sin was. I knew there was wrongdoing. I knew that. But I, it was when I started reading scripture and reading the different, the many lists, they're all over the place that tell you this is wrong in the eyes of God, that I first realized, oh, wow, I'm in trouble. But see, sin hides itself. It doesn't make itself known. People don't know what sin is, what it demands, that it leads to death, how it enslaves us. It doesn't do that. And so people don't know. Sin only shows us the glitter side. It hides the slave master side. Another reason that only Christians are free is that following God leads to life and life eternal, whereas sin leads to death. Another thing is that following God, we are transformed from the heart. That verse 17 needs to become your friend. If you've always only seen religion as, as a duty, you have not understood verse 17 because verse 17 says that now we become obedient from the heart. Circle that. To the pattern that now claims our allegiance. This is the beauty of the gospel. That now we get to act and live and feel and think from the heart. I mean, just think about this. To be able to do what love requires, what holiness requires, what duty requires, but to do it from the heart, that is the highest level of freedom and happiness that any human can aspire to. I mean, just think of the difference between the posture when, it, when, when you're bringing something to your wife and saying, you know, I get to bring flowers to my wife versus I have to bring flowers to my wife here. So different. And that's what the gospel does, is it allows us to be changed from within so that our heart, our person agrees with who God is and with his design for us. In our culture, we have competing views of freedom. There's a traditional view of freedom. Throughout history, freedom meant that people had the moral and relational resources to become able of self-governance, to become good, virtuous, selfless people able to escape vice. But in order for you to be able to become this good person, you had to train yourself in the way of wisdom that was passed down from family and community onto you. And so you learned your place in the world and the freedom and identity that came, came with that as a member of a community. Now, there's always, uh, there, there are weaknesses for sure with that model, right? Because your community or your family could be overbearing or naive or ignorant, that was the traditional view of freedom. You're enabled, empowered to, to have virtue, to have self-governance. The new form of freedom says that we should uh, remove all external restraints upon us so we can become who we want to be and do what we want. You should jettison 
Your family, gone. Your, uh, your, social, uh, your community, gone. Your social institutions, gone. You're designed by God, gone. So that now you can actually become free. Just do whatever you want. That's the new uh, view of freedom. Both of these have problems, but at least the traditional view was clear and open about the fact that there was a framework of many demands within which you operated. There were boundaries, and within those boundaries, you could become the best you. The new form of freedom just says there are no boundaries. You are just simply free. You can do whatever you want. There's no framework. But we know that's not true. As we saw, even with the simple example of our relationship to our phones, and yet how much power they have over us. See, gospel freedom is the highest kind because, as we said, God makes himself visible. God tells us what his framework is. Where, where Paul says in verse 17, the pattern of teaching, you become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. What is that pattern of teaching? The gospel. God tells us the, the pattern, the, the framework, the gospel is within which we can have life. God makes himself visible. He wants us to know him, to know who he is, to know that he's our father, to see and know what he's done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the highest form of freedom in the gospel because it also leads to life, not to death, and because it's from within that we operate. Any other kind of freedom is going to fall short on all three of those accounts. Either the, the framework is going to be man-made or it's going to lead to death or you are um, not operating from your heart in alignment with God's will, which is why in verse 17, Paul says, thanks be to God. God has accomplished what sages, modern and ancient, have promised but been unable to deliver. Think of a fish. In the traditional view of freedom, the fish embraces the boundaries of water, but it's the fish's community, the school of fish, that tell the fish what it can or cannot become. In the new view of freedom, the fish is being told, you don't really need water. You want to live on land? Go for it. Actually, it's impossible, but go for it. This is where a lot of the gender confusion for people today comes from. There is absolutely no framework. Just go, do, be, whatever you want. But in gospel freedom, the fish learns. The fish loves the, the, the framework, the boundaries of water that he was designed to thrive within. And so, in verse 18... Paul says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Righteousness is a rich word in scripture. It does not mean holiness. Righteousness leads to holiness. Righteousness includes all that God has done, all that he has promised to do for his people. Remember that God is engaged in this program. This project of uh, restoring all of humanity to the way that he created it uh, without sin, without death, without evil. And when we're slaves to righteousness, to God's ways and God's purposes, we're called laboring. We're called laboring with God in the greatest project of all, the restoration of humankind. And so who do you obey? Sin or God? Number two, what fruit do you reap? What fruit do you reap? Look at verse 19. Paul goes on. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. So Paul here is acknowledging the fact that this metaphor of slavery might be off-putting to some. 
In the Roman Empire, depending on the city that you were in, you could have one-third up to two-thirds of the population that were either slaves or former slaves. And so they understood the dynamics of master and slave, but now Paul is taking that and applying it to a new category, sin and God. And he says in verse 19 in the middle, he says, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Now think about this. Do you think that anyone in that audience that Paul was writing to had ever seen themselves as actually offering themselves as slaves to impurity, as slaves to ever-increasing wickedness? Hardly. And yet that's where they were. And so remember, what Paul is attempting to do in chapter 6 is make visible for us the, the, the slave master side of sin, the destructive side of sin that hides itself from us. I was talking to someone not too long ago, and he shared with me this realization that he had that was really powerful. He said that when he would spend time with some of his family members, they would drink some, they would smoke some things. And he didn't really feel bad about that. You know, he wasn't really convicted about that. To him, it was kind of, kind of harmless until the next day. And the next day, without fail, he would look at pornography. And about that thing, he really did feel convicted. But so over time, what he started seeing was the pattern of what he would do with his family members. And he felt, ah, this is pretty fine. But then the next day, he was back in this place. And so... He woke up to the pattern. He realized the pattern, and he was able to go back to his family uh, and, and say to them, hey, I, I can't keep doing these things with you. Now, there are two things that I want you to notice about that story and the scripture. First, I want you to notice the enslaving nature of these activities. See, the person felt that he was totally in control of the drinking and smoking, but then he was totally powerless about pornography the next day, the very thing that he was trying to stop. But I also want you to notice that uh, just the move from impurity to wickedness, right? Uh, the drinking and the smoking, that to him felt kind of impure, you know, not totally wholesome, not totally evil. Pornography, however... He did see as totally wicked. And yet, because he had, his spiritual discernment was compromised with the drinking and smoking, his spiritual strength was depleted the next day when he tried to not do that very thing. Listen, there may be things in your life that if anyone was to ask you, uh, are you really okay with being a slave to that? You would say, no. No. And yet, there you are, enslaved. You see, for Christians... What Paul is saying to us here, what the word of God is saying to us is that that was your past. That's who you used to be. That's not you anymore. You're not. If you're in Christ, you're not a slave of sin. And if you're not a Christian, then the word to you is to see your slavery to sin. You may think that you're so free. You're able to do whatever. And yet, oh, that you would only see how enslaved you are to whatever those things are that are in your life. And so the word for you is to see that and to come to Christ. Come to us. Talk to us so that we may help you understand what it means to place your faith in Jesus Christ so that you may be able to escape the slavery of sin. But for all of us, the end of verse 19 says, So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. So Paul says, you've You've escaped the slavery of sin, so now offer yourselves as slaves 
to righteousness. There are Christians that seem to be sedated. You know, there was an energy, a creativity, an initiative they had before they came to Christ. They were, they were giving it all, whether they partied extra hard on the weekends or were uber competitive at work, whatever it was, they, they were going to leave a mark. And they were excited about it, and they were going full steam. But then they came to Christ, and they realized, wow, my motives in doing those things were wrong. Many of those things were wrong. And then they stop, which is good, but they don't replace that with good things, with righteous things. There's a vacuum now in their lives, and they're bored. You know why? Because that's now what Christ called us to. He called us to now be slaves for righteousness, to give ourselves to the cause of Christ. You know, there are Christians who, uh, or we as Christians should be the most passionate people, the, the ones that are using our, our hands, our brains, our energy to fight against the darkness. And there are so many of you uh, that there are just great stories of when, when you were slaves to sin and then Christ coming into your life and now you're just a slave to righteousness. You know, there's someone in the church and when she came to Christ, I mean, a number of things just started changing. You know, her attitude toward debt completely changed. But another thing that's been so beautiful is just she just opened her home. She just started opening her home to people in need. And she has uh, for a long time just had people that need help getting back on their feet or whatever that may be. But that's what Paul is talking about. We cannot be known for what we stand against only or mainly. We must be known for what we're for, what we're about. You know, another family, when they came to Christ, it was so powerful. Um, they came to Christ, and now they had all of these family members who did not know him. And what did they do? Did they become all judgy with their family and friends? No. They weren't like, oh, wow, we're so righteous now. Look at them at all. Do you know what happened? Their hearts were filled with compassion for their friends and family members who are without Jesus. And it's hard for them to comprehend it. It's even though they were there just a couple of years ago. But it's just hard for them to, to, to comprehend that they can still be living in such darkness. These people that they love so much. That's what Paul is talking about. Because they're, they're now giving witness to the power and the beauty of what Christ has done in their lives. And they're constantly praying for their family members. What God does through those prayers, it's amazing. But you see, we should be the most energetic about fighting against the darkness. Because before we had Christ, all we could do was go along with the darkness. Look at verse 20. Look at what he says. He says, when you were slaves, listen to this carefully. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free. You see that? When you were slaves to sin, you were free. Free? Wait, we're slaves to sin, but we're free? Free from what? Free from the control of righteousness. It's like, Paul, why do you put it like that? You know, what are you, what are you doing to us, Paul? You see what he means? What he means is that prior to coming to Christ, our lives could not count for God. We were slaves to sin. We could only sin. We were not free, or rather, we were free in the worst possible sense. We were free to do evil. We were free to pile on shame upon shame. That's what he says in verse 21. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of. 
Those things result in death. I talk to so many people, and I'm sure that you do as well, who live with crushing shame from their past. Especially when it comes to sexual shame from our past, it is very challenging for people to overcome. I mean, it takes so much prayer and save the safety of community and an understanding of the holiness and tenderness of Jesus to us in our shame because he's not one to say, oh, I can't stand you. I can't look at you. Get away from me. That's not how he is toward us. No, he draws us near. He calls us to himself. He pulls us up close so that he may heal us. Just hang on to me, he says, and I will heal you. But it's difficult for people to overcome past shame. Oftentimes, it takes even the help of a professional counselor. You know, the people that Paul was writing to, many of whom were Gentiles in the Roman Empire, they would have come from a sexually promiscuous background. And Paul does not want them to forget their shame. Why is that? Does Paul get a kick out of rubbing their noses in the dirt? No, not at all. But as the Puritan Thomas Watson said, till sin be bitter, Christ won't be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ won't be sweet. Is he sweet to you yet? Is he so tender, so wonderful to you? I love that line. I can't remember it fully, but it just said, you know, if I've ever loved you, my Jesus, it's now. Don't you love that? That's what Romans should be doing for us, is help us not know that, oh, in the past, I, I had different priorities. Yeah, I made it to church once in a while. In the past, I made so many mistakes. I wasn't super wise. In the past, I was just following my family's tradition. No, that is not what you were doing in the past. You were dead in your sins. Dead. The wages of sin is death. That's all you had to show for your life is just uh, crushing shame, guilt, destructive patterns. But now Christ is your master. Christ sets you free. Oh, how sweet he is. How sweet and tender is his death for us when we see how desperate our problem was. I mean, Paul says there, verse 22, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefits you reap lead to holiness and the result is eternal life. You guys, no shame. There is no shame. There's no regret. Now with Christ, it doesn't mean that we live perfect lives, but every day you know that you have this sweet, good master who loves you who's your brother, who gave his life for you, who will never turn you away. Not, he will not ever turn you away. That he's gonna keep doing everything he can in your life to draw you away from the follies of sin, to help you see the, this, the slave master side of sin, and to heal you and remake you in his likeness. The result of our slavery to sin is death, Paul says, death is brokenness, emptiness now, and misery and agony forever. What fruit are you reaping from your life? Is it evident 
in your life whom you serve, that you're serving God and not sin. Lastly, what destiny awaits you? Verse 23, many of you know this verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, life for us in this country, in this world, has become so comfortable that it's hard for us to long for the life to come, for life eternal in the absence of pain and sin and death. For Christians in the majority world who struggle just day to day to make ends meet, who are persecuted for their faith, who don't expect to live long lives due to illness or war or famine, they long, they long for this new kind of life that Jesus alone promises and delivers and I want the fullness of my life. I want the fullness of my life to come, not from the comfort of my surroundings, but from the depth of obedience to Christ, the depth of fellowship that I have with him. That is what I want. And I know that we all are so prone to just hang it up and be like, man, I'm just, our lives are just padded so nicely. This past week, I was talking to a brother who was in the hospital, and Anytime that you're sick enough to be hospitalized, um, you can taste your smallness, right? Pretensions just crumble. And so we talked a couple of times and we prayed and both times he just broke down in tears. And he said, I'm so grateful for my identity with Jesus. And he said that through tears. Listen. The gift of God through our Lord Jesus Christ is life eternal. As a slave to God, your value is infinite because you are his child. You're his child. Yes, slave is an appropriate metaphor, but more than that, you are God's child. As a slave to sin, you are worthless. You are worthless. Sin cares nothing for you. The last three weeks, Romans has been making sin visible for us so that we will fight it, so we will hate it, so it will become bitter to us because remember, till sin be bitter, Christ won't be sweet. Is he sweet to you? Please think about that. Romans 6 should be emboldening you, making you so bold to take your fight to sin. Know that in Christ, you can slay it. Become a sin slayer. Stop flirting with it. Do not flirt with sin. It will lead you from impurity to ever-increasing wickedness. And that's always where we end. So often, we're just flirting with sin, with things that we're like, ah, yeah, this is kind of impure. Maybe not. I'm not sure. What are you doing? It will always lead you to wickedness, and it always results in death. Take your fight to sin. Give all your energy, your creativity, your initiative to the cause of Christ. Be a slave of righteousness. Don't just sit in your salvation and be bored. Why do that? This life is so precious. No, enjoy. Enjoy the freedom of obedience from the heart. The pattern of teaching that has claimed your allegiance now. Use all that you have to honor your king. Does your phone have mastery over you? Does your work have mastery over you? Does your political party have mastery over you? What cultural ideology has enslaved you? Do you think that you can indulge in the pleasure side of sin and the slave master side not lead you to death? Everyone is a slave. 
but only Christians are free. 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 Listen, only Christians are free. Free to love your spouse on your 50th anniversary more than you did on your wedding day. Free to love your children and instruct them in the Lord with all the tenderness of truth and grace. Free to forgive those who have deeply wronged you. Free to welcome strangers into your home. People you just barely met. Free to give your resources away. With no concern because you know God has you. Free to make your work environment thrive. Without politics, without backstabbing. But by showing honor to everyone. Everyone. Doesn't matter. They're above you. We love you. It doesn't matter. Free. Guys, we are free in Christ. Bask in that freedom. You are free to confess that Jesus is Lord and life is eternal by the gift of God. And so as we get ready to take the communion, I want you to ponder your freedom in Christ. I want you to take a few moments to settle your heart in the Lord. Confess your sin to him. Receive his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are here today by the power of the blood of Christ. What a gift it is to us, Lord, to be able to come, to come together and receive your word as we sang it, as we received it just now in the preaching, as we're about to eat it in the Lord's Supper, as we pray it. Father, thank you for this freedom that you've given to us. Father, it was a horrible thing for us to be free from the control of righteousness. What a horrible definition of freedom. And yet it is the only one that people who do not know your son have. So Father, I pray that we would now come in humility and gratitude to your table. Lord Jesus, we know you are presiding over this table. You are the one who invites us to take the bread, to take the cup, to remember your death, to anticipate your return when we will drink it anew with you in the kingdom of your Father. Thank you, O Lord. Church, let's take a few moments to ponder these things. And get our hearts ready before we take the elements. us take the bread, the body of the Lord given for us. Let's take the cup, the blood of the Lord shed for the forgiveness of our sins.
Oh Lord, we love you. How sweet the taste of forgiveness. It is sweet to us now, Lord, but it was bitter to you, Jesus, as you drank the poison, as you canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. I pray, Father, that now sin would be bitter to us, that that which you've done for us, granting us life, would be ever sweet. We receive your forgiveness. We receive the washing of our sins away by your blood. And now we continue in worship as we sing to you. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.